I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Ruler Podcast. I'm Ian Parkinson, and on this edition, we're going to be asking whether professional cycling needs a bit of a kick up the arse. Is it too dull? Is it in need of some new formats and a bit of a shake-up? We've seen a few attempts at livening up the format of racing, both on the road and on the track over the past couple of years, and there are signs that some of them are starting to stick. Uh, Ruler editor Ian Cleverly was in Holland a while ago to see the first of the Hammer series, which is one option for making the format of road racing more accessible. Uh, More established and very different are the fixed gear criteriums, racing road circuits on track bikes, which are growing in popularity all the time and seem to be bringing a new audience and new racers into the sport. Probably the best known of these is the Red Hook Criterium series, which has expanded from its original home in Brooklyn to include races in Milan, Barcelona and London. The third London Red Hook uh, took place recently and we'll be talking to a couple of the riders from that event in a little while. Uh, First though, here's a flavour of the event and the crowds. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5... I'm a keen road cyclist myself. I've been to track events, I've been to road events. Just got a different vibe to most other bike events I've been to. So come down, have a few beers. It's good fun, very good fun. I just love the atmosphere, the speed. You know, you just can't get over how fast someone can go on two wheels, really. It's just fun. It's kind of intense. The speed's amazing. When I came here and I was marshalling, I was just kind of blown away by how fast the guys go and the girls as well, you know. Probably kind of pedal for metal stuff. Yeah, went to Nocturne, do a velodrome, been to six days, which is wicked. Um, it's just they're all kind of doing their own thing. I think cycling is kind of getting more approachable in that way, which is lovely. It's a great chance for everyone to uh, have fun in London, uh, get cyclists from all over the world to come to London and ride their yeah, crit bikes around a course in Greenwich. You build the atmosphere, there's a massive cycling community in each town that you go to and you manage to meet this sort of European-wide, American-wide, worldwide fucking community of riders. There goes Brooke. Go on, Veronica! Uh, but, it, it, you know, everyone's always about like, having fun and just enjoying themselves and you're always a part of your teams and stuff and, every, and you can get independent riders and everyone just loves riding their bikes so they just fucking like to go around in circles so why not do it you know because cycling is great and like there's not many of your like, cycling races that are available to women just like that um so yeah just seeing my mates race is great 
building a subculture, I guess, or some sort of a culture. <laughs> There's a whole style and an aura about uh, about these guys. Uh, not only do they not have no brakes, they have no gears either. So it's sheer muscle power, sheer, sheer strength. My money's on on Briggs. He's just like he's from London, England. Strong rider. Yeah. And we have Alec Briggs of uh, Specialized Rocket Espresso with us. And from the fifth floor team, we have Sophie Edmondson. Welcome to you both. Um, Alec, we heard the uh, commentator there saying that you were leading the uh, pack round. How did it end up for you? Uh, it sounds like I owe someone some money and they may have lost some, maybe a few beers at least. I ended up third. It was a interesting day, eventful day. Punches, bike changes, two crashes, all sorts. And it was pouring down with rain as well, wasn't it? Yeah, that definitely added to it, for sure. As I think you, when you race road criteriums in the rain, it adds you know, a, a different element to it. But when you do that on a track bike, it's, it's even more chaos. And it, for me, it made it more, a lot more fun. How many of the uh, Red Hook uh, criterium have you done? Uh, I did my first one in London in 2015. And I think since then, maybe I've completed... Maybe four or five. I've been crashed out of two. Started one, just didn't have the fitness, so left that one in the dumpster. And you ended up third at London this year? This year, yeah, that's my best result. I was, I was actually really happy with it. I'm not going to lie to you. It, after everything that happened that day, it was, I was happier with that than I was over any win I've had this year. So, Sophie, was this your first red hook? Yes, yeah, my first red hook. Bit of a big one, really, when you're on home turf. It was exciting, though. And the women's race in particular was absolutely chucking it down, wasn't it? Yeah, we had... Uh, there was two qualifying pools. Um, and the first one went through and they got massive downpour. I was in the second one. We didn't get so badly drenched in that one. But we were still, you know... Uh, everything is, is pretty much gone in terms of kit and your bike soaked. Um, and in the final, yeah, it was wet... And then at the very end, there was a massive sunbeam and it, and it eased off. You mentioned crashes earlier on, Alec. Um, it, it does seem <laughs> I know to where be, we're going with this. It does seem to be a bit of a feature of, uh, of the uh, fixed gear crits, doesn't it? it? Yeah, it says a lot about it. I've, the red hook crits and fixed gears in general, um, it's the most on the limit I've ever been on a bike throughout a whole entire race. I there's so much skill involved. You have, there's so much going on. I think the consequences are so much more severe because you don't have brakes to bail you out or a free wheel to bail you out. So, um, yeah, there is a lot more crashes than your standard criterion. You've got to bear in mind that, that because neither of us could make this race, which we would very much like to have done if we hadn't been away at other things, um, our only experience of red hook crits is seeing these massive crashes on YouTube. I think that's most people. Which is kind of scary, you know? <laughs> yeah. I've been I've been in two of them. Um and they hurt. I've never crashed in a road criterion, but I've crashed twice in a fixed criterion, both in Barcelona on the same course in the same place. But I think it was just coincidence and you know, it was just a racing incident and it's but it's just they're so competitive. Um they're fast, they are intense. The battle for position to stay in that top ten is like, you know, you race a road criterion and you can kind of rely on gears to clunk down the block and get up on the straight. But in uh, on a trap bike, one gear, no brakes. 
it's, it's harder to do that. So the fight to stay up top is so much more intense than a standard pro criterion. You're not really selling it to me. What's, what's the opinion? <laughs> <laughs> well, along, along with that comes uh, just a lot to watch. There is, there's a lot of yelping from the bunch. It's, people are on the limit. People are just attacking each other at every moment they can get. Um, anything can happen. I think from a crowd's perspective, uh, it's not just strung out like your standard road criteria and people following the same line. It's people constantly trying to find different racing lines to get around other riders and slingshot themselves up on the straights to just gain a place or two. Sometimes I will spend 10 laps in a fixed criterion just trying to pick off a place a lap just because it is that hard. You know, I can't just click down the block and smash it up the side or... I have to really think about a game plan the whole entire race. And, and in London, um, certainly in the men's race, the British riders were in a minority or looked like to be being in a minority. Most of the uh, riders were uh, from Europe. There are a lot of Americans, Canadians. Um, it's, it's a really international event. And it, it? it wasn't just the nationalities. I mean, my, my co-pilot, Andy at work, looked down, down through the top 10 and says, I know, I know the names of these guys. These are professional cyclists. Yeah, well, like... David Vigano, who came who one place ahead of me, he was on Quick Step a couple of years ago, Team Sky. Um, he's, he's ridden Grand Tours. Ivan Ravioli, who's raced Milan San Remo with Pantani, and uh, not maybe not Milan San Remo, but you know, he's ridden with Pantani, same team. Grand Tours as well. Um, Pippo 14, currently a professional rider who won the race. Colin Strickland, American pros, you know, Callum Skinner, uh, Jermaine Burton. Keanu Amade all raced in Brooklyn. Um, Jermaine didn't even, I don't know what happened to him, but you know, there's there's a lot of big professional riders with big credentials not actually making the final. So that does say that it's very different to your standard road bike races. Because at the other end of the field, um, there do seem to be people who, um, you know, in a good way, are doing it for a laugh. Now, what's really interesting about that is that someone might be doing it for a laugh, but they might be beating a professional rider and they might have a crack at actually winning the race. Now, that comes from, it's not just being fit to win a Red Hook Criterium. It comes with skill, composure, uh, a race head, being able to spin as well as having strength. And I think the composure and the skill is so much more needed in a fixed criterium than it is in any other discipline of road cycling, cyclocross even. And it plays a massive part in being able to do well in the races. And I think that transfers into watching it from the sideline. And um, I think that's part of the reason why people are enjoying watching it so much as well, because any dog can have its day. And, and Sophie, you had like Olympic medalists like Danny King in your race, which is, you know... Yeah, well, I mean, it's not at all daunting. You're starting no, off, not much, someone's no. taking the brakes off your bike, taking the gears off your bike, and then stick you in there with the pros. It's, yeah, it's, you just sign up to this thing and, and you're like, oh, okay, right, let's, let's go. <laughs> um, did, you, did you like it enough to come back for another one? Ooh. Oh. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, yeah. It was so exciting. So exciting. Um, I think I think we probably felt that the speeds were taken out of the women's race a bit because of the um because it was so wet. But then I guess my first race with Red Hook, I'm not too bothered if that's going to happen because I'm just getting used to how the bike feels with the corners where I'm putting down the, the, the power through the pedals, like coming out of the corners or going into it. Like you, you've got to really think about it. Um, so it, it was interesting listening to Alec talk about the tactics because I, you know, I hadn't even occurred to me 
No, I think that that idea that just just to pick off one place in the string is going to take possibly a whole lap of of planning and yeah, I think there's a there's an element of naivety signing up to the race, and then you hear Alec talk so eloquently about how he thinks in the race and and what what it takes to I guess to podium. And when I'm thinking back to the race and I compare it to other ones where it's also got a nice big crowd, an evening sort of that the evening vibe where it just feels completely different to anything else. And I could tune in and hear some of the crowd, like, you know, hear my name and hear the cheering, but I was on red alert. Focus was higher than ever. You just, you just eyes down the whole time. And that is completely different to anything else. I've got something to add to that actually. Um, never before in my life have I had a moment in a race, which I can't remember. And the last half of the lap, up until the last corner, I can't remember a thing of the last red hook. I don't know why that is, but I remember coming out of turn three and seeing the winner kick and going, I have to jump on that. And then I remember just coming into the last corner, sort of 500 metres later, and I can't remember anything in between. And now that's, that's quite weird. I don't know if it's because I was in full-on concentration mode or because it's just absolute chaos, but never has that happened to me in a road criterion before. Wow. my only example of that was alcohol related <laughs> yeah I did I was trying to remember that one but I don't think I did have any shots on the start line this time it does seem to attract a, a different type of spectator as well doesn't it to kind of what you might call traditional um, bike racing yes definitely I think um, the red hooks and fixed gear criteriums kind of have a connection and maybe more of a relationship with your messenger career kind of side to stuff which is a bit more rebellious a bit more out there a bit more risque and um for me that does it the world of good um everyone what i really like about the red hook crits especially is that everyone kind of comes down to a level playing field there's a very social element of it that is not apparent in any other road criteriums i've done this year there's no team buses there's everyone's at the pre-party everyone's at the after party everyone says hello no matter who you are people welcome anyone it doesn't matter how good you are how bad you are how new you are how experienced you are and people are just excited to race with a different breed of cyclists like there's slightly cross riders mountain bikers just messengers professional riders all in there to do the same thing and it has the red hook crit and a fixed gear criterium has this amazing thing where it just brings everyone down to the same level and I don't experience that in every, in any other discipline. There's so much snobbery and road racism what I've done, and it's just really refreshing. I just, I'm just thinking from my my own experience of, of of racing. The nearest vibe would be mountain biking or cross, where it, it it there isn't that kind of yeah. Nobody looks down their nose. You know, it's like just everyone's welcome. Get stuck in and have a laugh about it afterwards, and which is a you know, which is always a nice vibe. That's that's where I always feel most most comfortable at home. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with you. But that being said, I've I've grown up on mountain biking and cyclocross, and not once have I been to a pre-party or an after-party other than Brighton Big Dog, which is seen purely as a piece of fun. And I think cycling needs that. I think it needs everyone to let their hair down a little bit and just kind of not take themselves so seriously. I do realise that people are making money out of cycling in some disciplines and anyone racing Red Hook, Red Hook Criterium or any of the other fixed races probably is not. I know I'm not. And um, 
But some people are, aren't they? Because the, the, there are professional teams in in Italy who are, you know who ride fixed gear crits all the time. Yeah, I would. There is definitely a few people. You know, I, th- I think people speculate that even people like me are on some money. I can honestly tell you, I'm not. Um, I've, there's always rumours flying around that so and so is on this amount of money a year from so and so team. And but to be honest, it means nothing to anyone. And all those rumours seem to be dying down. And every year I think uh, Red Hook's going to get too big for itself, that it's going to become like any other discipline. But year on year, it actually gets better and the vibe gets better. And that's, I haven't quite worked out why that is, but I, I do believe it's something to do with David Trimble, the organiser and creator, having a really good sort of race head on him and being present at all these parties and listening to what riders have to say, what riders want, what people want, and just creating something that is actually fun to watch and that's his goal his goal is i want to create an event that's exciting to watch not just a race do you think it'd be interesting to look at the makeup of the of the audience so people who turn up on that saturday night they've gone pretty far out their way from central london to greenwich peninsula for for the red hook that's just been i know people who turned up who race bikes i know people who turned up who ride who cycle and i also know people who went who don't have really any interest in bikes but they went for the event and the spectacle of it and I don't know whether, I mean, I remember waking up um, last year after Brooklyn and looked on social media and there's just this massive crash has gone viral. And it's, you can see, I can see fifth floor colours. Um, at the bottom of this pile is Alex Blomley getting like chain ring rammed into his back. There's people just going, you know, when that moped stalled and it went nuts, didn't it? It was everywhere. And I think it, it raised the profile of the event in the, I guess, it's a positive way for it. But part of me thinks that some people just turn up to have a look and watch the spectacle. And it's a, it, it can almost feel a bit like a zoo, you know? There's these people there, there's something's going to happen. Damn, this is wet this time. Okay, brilliant. No breaks, wet. Something, something's mental is going to happen. And so it's a little bit, I think it's a little bit dark like that. But then being part of it, there's an energy there that's also apparent. And, and being involved in that's pretty exciting. It sounded like a very young crowd. If, if from from those clips we heard earlier, is that is that representative of, of of the crowd that's there? Yeah, I'd agree with that. The makeup of the crowd is often the racers' friends and partners and so on, and just people who are coming along who might not want to race the event but do ride and have friends that ride. Because every event has its own vibe as well. Brooklyn and London, Barcelona. There's different elements to just the surroundings, which which actually lend to the vibe of the race. For example, Milan is just next level. Like you're on the start line and people are smashing those boards so loud you can't hear yourself think. They just go mental for it. There's people standing on buildings. It's from a photographer's point of view and and so on. It is absolutely magical. In all honesty, I'd say London is probably the dullest one, and it's and it's still entertaining. I hate to use the H word, but. Um, there is an element of hipster about it, isn't there? And that's one of the things that, certainly from the outside, that's one of the things that people find a bit off-putting. 100%. So three years ago, or two years ago, when I first did the Red Hook Criterium, I didn't really know what it was. Um, I luckily got introduced to it by a a friend I rode with quite a lot. And um, everyone that I mentioned to that I was doing this, people that I ride with, people at Hearn Hill, people, you know, I race road racings with, they all laughed a bit, kind of looked down their nose and thought, what the hell are you doing, you hipster, blah, blah, blah. And I think in 
then the year after they were still kind of clinging on to that mm, you know you're just gonna crash get yourself hurt but now people look at it and they go that's actually pretty cool and they see riders like Vigano and you know ravioli with such credentials racing it and not even winning i think that makes them go wow this is actually its own discipline and it has its own respect it's quite cool what do you think um, professional cycling can learn uh, from Red Hook Crip? Women's cycling in particular, Sophie, I think, because you know, uh, one of the uh, crowd there said that you know, one of the things about the uh, Red Hook Crips is that there's actually a limited amount of other racing for, uh, for women regularly and internationally. So it's a tough question. I think um, we're a bit spoiled in London, actually, from from a crit scene in summer you can race pretty much every night and that's men and women so I think if you park that then yeah what you're saying is right we're a bit of an anomaly here in the, in the capital it's just important that whenever there is a men's event there's a women's one matched and it's not the second rate one okay the main event or main race in terms of the schedule at Red Hook is the evening one that's absolutely fine there's still a women's race that's um, on par with it in terms of professional racing, what they can learn from it, I guess maybe just the publicity, getting the communication out there. Um, Red Hook are awesome at doing that. And actually, so that's across the whole event, making it more accessible. If they can get the crowds turning up and get them excited like they are with Red Hook, where you don't have all the um, proper proper like roadie cyclists or people who are really into it, then, then that's, that's where you want to move it. You're listening to the Ruler Podcast. Well, maybe this is a good time to move on to... Uh, the Hammer. Where I went, The Hammer. You were in Limburg. Limburg, yeah. The Dutch Alps, <laughs> as they are known, um, there was earlier a, there this was year. A, there was a hill. Yeah. To see the first of The Hammer series. And do we know are there going to be any more? Oh, yes. There are, are there? Yes, Because yeah, yes, at the time, yes. the, the, it well, wasn't they start, they Well, they started off, they were talking about it, they were trying to get another one in this season, but they decided against it. But it's definitely ramping up next season. And in, uh, so they're definitely going to Limburg again. Uh, another interesting one is that they are joining on with the, the Tour of the Fjords in Norway. So there'll be the, the three-day... Uh, tour of the fjords and then i think maybe a day in between and then there'll be your three-day hammer series um but what got me thinking about that was when you're talking about uh new audiences and new crowds the crowd at the hammer series um i thought was really poor really poorly attended it was it was empty and i mean you can see that in in uh in marshall's photographs in 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 the issue um and it is that matter of of an older generation of cycling fans who just kind of, I'm just kind of I'm a bit bored with this, you know. Uh, so even though it was something new, it in some respects it wasn't. And I guess Limburg is sort of the heart of old Dutch cycling in a lot of ways, isn't it? So actually, you know, it's in some ways it's an odd, you know, Barcelona, Brooklyn, um, you know, the East End of London makes sense to launch new events. Limburg perhaps, perhaps doesn't. That's where I kind of ended up at the end of the piece, um, talking to the organisers and saying, well, look, you know, what people were coming onto social media, having watched it, saying, this racing is fantastic. I love it. It's bonkers. I don't understand what's happening, but it's great racing. Wouldn't it be lovely to have it in 
Barcelona. That, that was the, that was one that got cited. Yes, of course it would. Um, that's a big a big ask, and that's but that's that's the, the, I think ultimately they would love to have it in one of these iconic locations. Remind us how it worked, because I, <laughs> it has to be said I got a bit confused by it. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, so did I. I mean, it, 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 nobody knew how it worked. That's the hilarious thing. So you've got the you've got an opening stage, uh, which is essentially well. It's a points race with points at the top of the hill every race. Um, but then it's on a team format. And then the next day you've got um, a, a team time... Oh, no, sorry, that was the final day, wasn't it? See, even, even I don't know how it worked. And you were there. Yeah, I was there. The, the, second, the second day was, was essentially a, a road race type thing, but with sprints every lap. They called it the, the sprint. Uh, the sprint. And then the third day was... was the most bonkers, fantastic thing ever, um, uh, whether by design or, 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 or uh, default. Um, it was a team time trial where the leading team starts off first uh, and then every other team starts according to their time gaps accrued over a, a, a mind-bogglingly uh, fantastical point system, which literally nobody, including the people who were actually running it, seemed to understand. But that's fine. Uh, and then at one point you had four teams came together. So you've got a 20 up. I think, I think it ends up with six teams in the end. A 20, 25 up team time trial formation bunch. Uh, bunch. <laughs> it, it was just bonkers, absolutely bonkers. But the, the, you, the, the winning move right at the end, I mean, you couldn't have scripted it any better. It, it, it was uh, Team Sunweb against Team Sky just, just going hammer and tongs uh, for the line and who, who, whichever rider was last across the line basically meant that their team finished second um, but you know if you're, if you're any you asked me to explain the rules I, I believe uh, several minutes ago I don't know I don't know and actually I don't care it was good fun Robert Miller called it uh, in uh, in this issue of Rouleur a glorified kermesse that no one uh, knows what it's for you can see where he's coming from yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what was he said at the end? You know, look forward to uh, Hammer Series Milton Keynes, Groucho Git. That complicated sort of team time trial format sounded a little bit like what they did, sort of at the last minute uh, for La Course, the uh, sort of women's event around a uh, link to the Tour de France. I wasn't quite sure I understood that one either. No, uh, again, I'm not sure anybody understood. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't work out as well. It was an experiment. Fair play. They need to go back to the drawing board and look at it again. And, and you know, everyone, everyone wants to ASO to up their game and actually put in a proper race for the women, whether it's three stages or whatever. But they, no, they they deserved better than what they got. But um, it, no, it did it didn't work at the end. But people are clearly getting the message that you need to do something different in order to keep uh, pro cycling, in order to keep you know cycling uh, going and and get it to new audiences. I guess they do and, and they don't in so much as, of course, there's always going to be a place for Paris Bay and the, the Tour de France and the Vuelta and the Giro. And, 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 um, but there's also a lot of races that have, have, have died and have, and have gone, out of, gone out of business because they, they haven't found a new audience. So any new idea, I think, is to be welcomed and, and, and uh, throw it in the mix and see how it goes. Now, I didn't actually see the entirety of the Hammer series. But what I did see was a small clip of the team time trial finish. And when I saw that, 
I was sad that I hadn't watched it because it looked brilliant. It was bodies everywhere, masses of team kind of competing against each other, riders chucking their hands in the air and they weren't sure if they won or not. It, it really was great. Did you see the bit where the motorcycle commissaire was trying to get in between the teams from the back <laughs> no. of his motorbike and he's like waving his arm, going like trying to get them to drop back. And it's like, no way. It's like, <laughs> gonna have, there's, there's, there's 20 guys all mixed up and he's like trying to separate them. In the end, he just got to put his hands in the air and just gave up. It was, <laughs> it was hilarious. I love Now, it. I like that. Now, I think personally, I think cycling has an absolutely lovely tradition of it, but I also believe that's its downfall. The way the cycling industry works, how people make money, it doesn't really make sense. And it requires people who absolutely adore the sport to run it. Now, as lovely as that is, and as thankful as I am, and I'm sure many others are, it does hold it back in some ways. Even things like local crits and grassroots racing, um, you know, modern trends that come in are just snubbed. They're, they're chucked out. Even simple things like sitting on a top tube, you know, for example, there's so many rules. British cycling are coming in, making things harder and harder to run a race. And... I think things like the Hammer Series and things like Red Hook Crit that have just gone, nah, stuff you UCI, stuff you British Cycling. I'm going to run my race the way I want it and it's going to be exciting. Professional cycling and the way cycling's trying to make money could really learn something from those guys. And, you know, we are so lucky to have things like Paris-Roubaix. You know, that's, that's a world and it's that's a class on its own. And I absolutely love that race. I think it's, it's brilliant to watch from start to finish. Now, you just... I think if someone sat down and looked at what makes a Red Hook Crit great, what makes the Hammer Series great once we know a bit more, Paris-Roubaix um, and so on, you know, people could maybe work something out and bring something new to the table. But, but is, it, is it a case that the format of the Hammer Series is good, but it's just the recipe mixing that with like, the location and the marketing? So that like, if, you, if you change one thing, you're nearly there, but you're never going to reach the end that, that you need. But if you just get those other two in line as well, then maybe, maybe you're onto something. Yeah, I, I, to, to my mind, the Hammer series just needs a, a bit of a tweak. Mm -hmm. That's all. It needs a bit of a tweak, just a bit of simplifying, and you know, a good. And, and I'm, I, it makes it sound like I'm down on Limburg, you know, and I'm really not because you know it, it was a, it, it was a lovely place in many respects. But where was the spectators? You know, it, honestly, if that had, if that had been in the UK, it would have been absolutely rammed. Maybe they just needed the moto commissaire to stall, and then <laughs> <laughs> all of a sudden it's on Paddy Power. Right. <laughs> you know, you look at other sports as well, like MotoGP. The, the fan base they draw in, and that kind of connection, that formality of a three-day event, practice, qualifying, race. Um, you know, it's like a festival, like a mini holiday, and it, it attracts people to it. And I think people have really got to start looking at that. Well, that was the interesting thing that Velen were trying to do with, with the hammer. It was, was how many different ways there were of enjoying, if that's the right word, the, the, the content. So, yeah, you could watch it, you could watch it live on, on, on TV. You could watch the GCN guys, which I, I found hilarious and, and, well, just very enjoyable, sitting in their studio watching it on TV kind of basically explaining what was going on, which was great because the poor fellas were just yeah. as mystified as the rest of us. Uh, but so, yeah, but uh, plus, you know, the Twitter, plus the Velon, plus the onboard camera. So there was, there was numerous different ways of actually digesting that content, you know, and, and I, I, I get where they're coming from. And that's that, I think that's a, that's a great thing. 
Issue 17.5 out at the moment. um, And we can choose favourite photographs from it. Um, For me, I think the photographs by John Pierce, you know, one of the longest serving Tour de France photographer, um, uh, is an amazing collection. The the one, I could choose almost any of them really, but the one from 2000 with um, Armstrong and Patani. Uh, both of them without helmets, both of them absolutely at the limit on Mont Ventoux, which is a uh, subject that you know we discussed on a recent podcast. That's a that's a great photograph for me. Um, Alec, Sophie, anything caught your eye? Yeah, I was flicking through. I saw the um, obviously drawn in by the women cycling. Give it a bit of a, a shout out. It's um, the six portraits of uh, women's faces. I presume at the end of one stage of the women's tour. Um, it's obviously been pretty gritty. They had bad weather, but it's it's sunny. And you can see them sort of, I'm guessing, some desolate town centre. There's a couple of barriers. Pretty much sums up women's cycling still. They've got big sponsors on them, but there's no crowd in the background. Um, and their faces are a mixture of elation. Mm, one or two are done in. Um, and it's just, just uh, summing up that they're going through the same as everyone else, aren't they? Alec, how about you? I think I'm going to have to go with the photo of Teo Gigenhart from the Hammer series. Teo is just going to be a great ambassador for cycling. You know, you look at him and he's in this photo, he's battle scar from his fall in the Hammer series. It's just little touches like the old traditional bars that he's chosen. And I think he's, he's very clever in how he, he has a nod to the traditions. And, you know, there's a quote from him here saying it's fashionable to knock something, but if you don't give it a chance, what is there? We'd be stuck in the 1800s or whatever. And I, I think a quote like that, you know, it shows he's got such a good head on him, which he clearly has done from his career choices from Axion and to Sky eventually. Maybe a bit of insider knowledge. I think he is planning on giving something back at some point. And I think he's just got a great head on him and cycling is going to be very thankful to have him. He's also a London boy, of course, and you know it's he's quite, a London boy. You know, it's quite unusual for a London boy to make it as a pro rider <laughs> yeah, these days. He's just he, so that ain't easy, you know. He just he's just an inspiration to me. I, I think I'm even a bit older than he is, and to have someone so young be so just level-headed is brilliant to watch, and it's brilliant to see him doing so well. I'm going to go for one of James Straffan's photographs of his very own artwork. He turns out to be not only a fabulous artist, but Pretty handy with a camera as well. Um, and it is of uh, Jacques Anquetil. James was commissioned by the um, Luxembourg, the British uh, the High Commission in Luxembourg to produce these street artworks uh, for the visit of the tour. And um, I don't know, it's just, you know, it's, it, what can you say? It's Anquetil, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's just, just captured him beautifully. I should also say that the uh, cover for the subscribers edition is that fabulous shot, I think, from Andy McGrath's book, um, Bird on the Wire, of Simpson in an open-top car with his World Championship jersey on, and that is just such a cool photograph, such a cool cover. It appears in in the article as well, uh, an extract from Andy McGrath's um, book, Bird on the Wire, which was, of course, the uh, prize in our competition uh, in the last podcast and in fact all that remains for us really is the competition on the last podcast the question was Tom Simpson was the first British rider to wear the yellow jersey at the Tour de France in what year and the answer was 1962 Daniel Gibson 
from Sheffield wins a signed copy of Andy McGrath's book, Tom Simpson, Bird on the Wire. Our question this time, uh, Team Sky won the Hammer Series in Limburg. Which team finished runner-up? We didn't give that away in the uh, podcast. Oh, for... <laughs> we have to go back and listen to... Uh... <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just check and see who was actually listening. Yeah, you yeah, may have to go back and listen to uh, the podcast because I think we may have given it away. Well, bearing in mind I said it, yeah. who, who would have been awake well, at that that's point? that's true, actually, yeah. yeah. Team Sky won the Hammer Series. Uh, who uh, finished runner-up? And if you don't know, just listen back for about 10 minutes. The prize is a stylish ruler T-shirt of your choice. Go to the Ruler website, the editorial section, find the page for the podcast. Details should be on there. And uh, that's it. Thanks to Alec Briggs. Thanks to Sophie Edmondson, Ian Cleverly. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.